Part 19 of Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Publicula, Part 2. But although, in these particulars, he showed himself a popular and moderate lawgiver, in the case of an immoderate offense he made the penalty severe, for he enacted a law by which any one who sought to make himself tyrant might be slain without trial, and the slayer should be free from blood guiltiness if he produced proofs of the crime. For although it is impossible for one who attempts so great a task to escape all notice, it is not impossible for him to do so long enough to make himself too powerful to be brought to trial, which trial his very crime precludes. He therefore gave any one who was able to do so the privilege of anticipating the culprit's trial. He also received praise for his law concerning the public treasury, when it was necessary for the citizens to contribute from their substance means for carrying on the war. He was unwilling to assume the administration of it himself or to allow his friends to do so, or, indeed, to have the public monies brought into any private house. He therefore made the temple of Saturn a treasury, as it is to this day, and gave the people the privilege of appointing two young men as quaestors or treasurers. The first to be thus appointed was Publius Vitorius and Marcus Minucius, and large sums of money were collected. For 130,000 names were on the assessment lists, orphans and widows being excused from the contribution. This matter regulated, he caused Lucretius, the father of Lucretia, to be appointed his colleague in the consulship. To him he yielded the precedence, as the elder man, and committed to him the so-called fasces, a privilege of seniority which has continued from that day to this. But Lucretius died a few days afterwards, and in a new election Marcus Horatius was chosen consul, and shared the office with Pupicola for the remainder of the year. While Tarquin was stirring up in Tuscany another war against the Romans, a thing of great portent is said to have happened. When Tarquin was still king, and had all but completed the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, either in consequence of an oracle, or else of his own good pleasure, he commissioned certain Tuscan craftsmen of Veii to place upon its roof a chariot of terracotta. Soon after this he was driven from his throne. The Tuscans, however, modeled the chariot and put it in a furnace for firing, but the clay did not contract and shrink in the fire as it usually does when its moisture evaporates. Instead of this it expanded and swelled and took on such size, strength, and hardness that it could with difficulty be removed, even after the roof of the furnace had been taken off and its sides torn away. To the seers, accordingly, this seemed a divine portent of prosperity and power, for those who should possess the chariot, and encouraged and incited Horatius to claim the privilege of consecrating the temple. At a time, then, when Publicola was necessarily absent on military service, they got a vote passed that Horatius should perform the consecration, and conducted him up to the capital, feeling that they could not have gained their point had Publicola been in the city. Some, however, say that Publicola was designated by lot, against his inclination for the expedition, and Horatius for the consecration. It is possible to infer how the matter stood between them from what happened at the consecration. It was the Ides of September, 
a day which nearly coincides with the full moon of the Attic month Metagitnion. The people were all assembled on the capital. Silence had been proclaimed, and Horatius, after performing the other ceremonies, and lying hold upon the door of the temple, as custom is, was pronouncing the usual words of consecration. Just then Marcus, the brother of Publicola, who had long been standing by the door and was watching his opportunity, said, O consul, thy son lies dead of sickness in the camp. This distressed all who heard it, but Horatius, not at all disturbed, merely said, Cast forth the dead, then, whither ye please, for I take no mourning upon me, and finished his consecration. Now the announcement was not true, but Marcus thought by his falsehood to deter Horatius from his duty. Wonderful, therefore, was the firm poise of the man, whether he at once saw through the deceit, or believed the story without letting it overcome him. A similar fortune seems to have attended the dedication of the second temple. The first, as I have said, was built by Tarquin, but consecrated by Horatius. This was destroyed by fire during the civil wars. The second temple was built by Sulla, but Catullus was commissioned to consecrate it, after the death of Sulla. This temple too was destroyed during the troublous times of Vitellius, and Vespasian began and completed the third, with the good fortune that attended him in all his undertakings. He lived to see it completed, and did not live to see it destroyed, as it was soon after, and in dying before his work was destroyed, he was just so much more fortunate than Sulla, who died before his was consecrated. For upon the death of Vespasian, the capital was burned. The fourth temple, which is now standing on the same site as the others, was both completed and consecrated by Domitian. It is said that Tarquin expended upon its foundations 40,000 pounds of silver, but the greatest wealth now attributed to any private citizen of Rome would not pay the cost of gilding alone of the present temple, which was more than 12,000 talents. Its pillars are of pentelic marble, and their thickness was once most happily proportioned to their length, for we saw them at Athens. But when they were recut and scraped at Rome, they did not gain as much in polish as they lost in symmetry and beauty, and they now look too slender and thin. However, if any one who was amazed at the costliness of the capital had seen but a single colonnade in the palace of Domitian, or a basilica, or a bath, or the apartments for his concubines, then, as Epicharmus says of the, to the spendthrift, "'Tis not beneficent thou art, thou art diseased, thy mania is to give.'" So, he would have been moved to say to Domitian, "'Tis not pious, nor nobly ambitious, thou, thou art, thou art diseased, thy mania is to build, like the famous Midas, thou desirest that everything become gold and stone to thy touch. So much, then, on this head. But, to return to Tarquin, after the great battle in which he lost his son in a duel with Brutus, he fled for refuge to Clusium and became a suppliant to Lars Porsena, the most powerful king in Italy, who was thought also to be a man of worth and noble ambitions. He promised Tarquin his aid and assistance. So, in the first place, he sent to Rome, and ordered them to receive Tarquin as their king. Then, when the Romans refused, he declared war upon them, proclaimed the time and place of his attack, and marched thither with a great force. Publicola was chosen consul for the second time, in his absence, and Titus Lucretius as his colleague. Returning, therefore, to Rome, and wishing, in the first place, to surpass Porsena in the loftiness of his spirit, 
he built the city of Sigliuria, although his adversary was already near at hand. After he had fortified it at great expense, he sent to it a colony of seven hundred men, indicating that he had no concern or fear about the war. However, a sharp assault was made upon its wall by Porsena, and its garrison was driven out. They fled to Rome, where the pursuing enemy almost followed them into the city. But Publicola promptly sallied out to their aid, in front of the gate, joined battle by the riverside with the enemy, who pressed on in great numbers, and held out against them until he was desperately wounded, and carried bodily out of the battle. The same fate overtook Lucretius, his colleague also, so that dismay fell upon the Romans, and they fled for safety towards the city. But as the enemy was forcing their way under the wooden bridge, Rome was in danger of being taken by storm. Horatius Cocles, however, first, and with him two of the most illustrious men of the city, Herminius and Lartius, defended the wooden bridge against them. Horatius had been given his surname of Cocles because he had lost one of his eyes in the wars. Some, however, say that his nose was flat and sunken, so that there was nothing to separate his eyes, and his eyebrows ran together, and that for this reason the multitude wished to call him Cyclops, but by a slip of the tongue the name of Cocles was generally prevalent instead. This Cocles, standing at the head of the bridge, kept the enemy back until his companions had cut the bridge in two behind him. Then, all accoutred as he was, he plunged into the river, and swam across to the other side, in spite of a wound in the buttocks from a Tuscan spear. Publicola, out of admiration for his valor, proposed that every Roman should at once contribute for him as much provisions as it could be consumed in a day, and that afterwards he should be given as much land as he could plow round in a day. Besides this, they set up a bronze statue of him in the temple of Vulcan, to console him with the honor for the lameness consequent upon his wound. While Parseno was closely investing the city, a famine afflicted the Romans, and another Tuscan army on its own account invaded their territory. Publicola, who was now consul for the third time, thought that Parseno must be met by a quiet and watchful resistance within the city, but he sallied out upon the other Tuscan army, engaged it, routed it, and slew five thousand of them. The story of Mucius had been often and variously told, but I must give it as it seems most credible to me. He was a man well endowed with every virtue, but most excellent in war. Designing to kill Porsena, he stole into his camp, wearing a Tuscan habit and using the speech to correspond. After walking around the tribunal where the king was sitting with others, not knowing him certainly, and fearing to inquire about him, he drew his sword, and slew that one of the group that he thought most likely to be the king. Upon this he was seized, and was being questioned, when a sort of pan containing live coals was brought to Porsena, who was about to offer sacrifice. Mucius held his right hand over the flames, and while the flesh was burning, stood, looking at Porsena with a bold and steadfast countenance, until the king was overcome with admiration, and released him, and handed him back his sword reaching it down to him from the tribunal. Mucius stretched out his left hand and took it, on account of which, they say, he received the surname of Scaevola, which means left-handed. Then he said that, although he had conquered the fear which Parsena inspired, he was vanquished by the nobility which he displayed, and would reveal out of gratitude what he would not have disclosed under compulsion. Three hundred Romans, then, said he, 
with the same resolution as mine, are now prowling about in thy camp and watching their opportunity. I was chosen by lot to make the first attempt upon thee, and I am not distressed at what has happened. So noble is the man who I failed to kill, and so worthy to be a friend rather than an enemy of the Romans. On hearing this, Parsena believed it to be true, and felt more inclined to come to terms, not so much, I suppose, through fear of the three hundred, as of wondering admiration for the lofty spirit and bravery of the Romans. All other writers agree in giving this Mucius the surname of Scyvola, but Athenodorus, the son of Sandon, in his book addressed to Octavia, the sister of Augustus Caesar, says that his surname was Posthumus. Pubicola himself, moreover, thinking that Persena would be more valuable as a friend and ally of the city than he was dangerous as an enemy, did not shrink from making the king an arbiter in his dispute with Tarquin, but often boldly challenged Tarquin to do so, confident in proving that he was the basest of men, and justly deprived of his kingdom. And when Tarquin gave him a rough answer, saying that he would make no man his judge, least of all Persena, seeing that he was swerving from his alliance with him, Persena was displeased and perceived the weakness of his cause. His son, Aruns, also pleaded earnestly with him in behalf of the Romans. Consequently, he put an end to his war against them, on condition that they give up the territory of Tuscany which they had taken, sent back their prisoners of war, and received back their deserters. In confirmation of these conditions, the Romans gave as hostages ten young men from their noblest families, and as many maidens, of whom Valeria, the daughter of Pubicola, was one. After these stipulations had been carried out, and when Persena had already remitted all his warlike preparations through his confidence in the treaty, these Roman maidens went down to the river to bathe, at a place where the curving bank formed a bay, and kept the water especially still and free from waves. As they saw no guard near, nor anyone else passing or crossing the stream, they were seized with a desire to swim away, notwithstanding the depth and whirl of the strong current. And some say that one of them, named Cloelia, crossed the stream on horseback, exhorting them and encouraging the rest as they swam. But when they came in safety to Pubicola, he bestowed no admiration or affection upon them, but was distressed because he would be thought less true to his word than Parsena, and because the daring exploit of the maidens would be called a base fraud on the part of the Romans. He seized them, therefore, and sent them back to Parsena. But Tarquin and his men got timely intelligence of this, set an ambush for the convoy of the maidens, and attacked them in superior numbers as they passed along. The party attacked, defended themselves, nevertheless, and Valeria, the daughter of Pubicola, darted through the combatants and fled, with the help of three attendants who broke through the crowd with her, and made good her escape. The rest of the maidens were mingled with the combatants, and in peril of their lives. But Arun's the son of Porsena, learning of the affair, came with all speed to their assistance, put their enemies to flight, and rescued the Romans. When Porsena saw the maidens thus brought back, he asked for the one who had begun the enterprise and encouraged the rest of it. And when he heard Cloelia named as the one, he looked upon her with a gracious and beaming countenance, and ordering one of the royal horses to be brought, all fittingly comparisoned, he made her a present of it. Those who say that Cloelia and Cloelia alone crossed the river on horseback, produced this fact as evidence. Others dispute the inference, and say that the Tuscan merely honored in this way the maiden's courage. 
but an equestrian statue of her stands by the Via Sacra as you go to the Palatine. Some say that it represents not Cloelia, but Valeria. Porcena, thus reconciled with the Romans, gave the city many proofs of his magnanimity. In particular, he ordered his Tuscan soldiers, when they evacuated their camp, to take with them their arms only, and nothing else, leaving it full of abundant provisions and all sorts of valuables which he turned over to the Romans. Therefore it is that, down to this very day, when there is a sale of public property, Porcena's goods are cried first, and thus the man's kindness is honored with perpetual remembrance. Moreover, a bronze statue of him used to stand near the Senate House of simple and archaic workmanship. After this, when the Sabines invaded the Roman territory, Marcus Valerius, a brother of Pupicola, was made consul, and with him Postumius Tubertus, insomuch as the most important steps were taken with the advice and assistance of Pupicola, Marcus was victorious in two great battles, and in the second of them, without losing a single Roman, slew thirteen thousand of the enemy. Besides his triumphs, he also obtained the honor of a house built for him at the public charge on the Palatine. And whereas the doors of the other houses at the time opened inwards into the vestibule, they made the outer door of his house, and of his alone, to open outwards, in order that by this concession he might be constantly partaking of public honor. They say that all the Greek doors used to open outwards in this way, and the conclusion is drawn from their comedies, where those who are about to go out of a house beat noisily on the inside of their own doors, in order that persons passing by or standing in front of them may hear, and not be taken by surprise when the doors open, out into the street. In the following year, Pupicola was consul again for the fourth time, when there was expectation of a war with the Sabines and Latins combined. At the same time, also, a sort of superstitious terror seized upon the city, because all the women who were pregnant were delivered of imperfect offspring, and all births were premature. Wherefore, by direction of the Sibylline books, Pubicola made propitiatory sacrifices to Pluto, and renewed certain games that had been recommended by Apollo, and after he thus made the city more cheerful in its hopes and expectations from the gods, he turned his attention to what it feared from men for their enemies were plainly making great preparations and a powerful league against them. Now there was among the Sabines one Appius Clausus, a man whose wealth made him powerful, as his personal prowess made him illustrious, but who was most eminent for his lofty character and for his great eloquence. He could not, however, escape the fate of all great men, but was an object of jealous hate, and when he tried to stop the war, those who hated him charged him with trying to increase the power of Rome, with a view to making himself tyrant and master of his own country. Perceiving that the multitude gave a ready ear to these stories, and that he himself was obnoxious to the war party and the military, he feared the issue, but, with a large and powerful coterie of friends and kinsmen to defend him, continued his opposition. This made the Sabines put off and delay the war. Pubicola, accordingly, making it his business not only to know about these matters, but also to foment and promote the faction, kept some of his followers employed in bringing to Clausus from him such messages as this. Pupicola thinks thee too worthy and just a man to inflict any evil upon thy fellow citizens in self-defense, even though thou art wrong by them. But if thou wishest, for thine own safety, to change thine allegiance and flee from those who hate thee, he will receive thee with public and private honors, which are worthy of thine own excellence and splendor of Rome.
On repeated consideration of the matter, this course seemed to Clausus the best that was open to him. He therefore summoned his friends, who, in like manner, persuaded many more to join him, and taking five thousand families from their homes, wives and children included, the most peaceful folk among the Sabines of gentle and sedate lives, he led them to Rome. Publicola knew beforehand of their coming, and gave them an eager and kindly welcome, admitting them to all rights and privileges, for he at once incorporated the families in the Roman state, and gave each two acres of land on the river Anio. To Clausus, however, he gave twenty-five acres of land, and enrolled him among the senators. This was the beginning of a political power which he used so wisely that he mounted to the highest dignity and acquired great influence. The Claudian family, which is descended from him, is no less illustrious than any in Rome. Though the schism among the Sabines was thus removed by the emigration of these men, their popular leaders would not suffer them to settle down into quiet, but complained bitterly that Clausus, by becoming an exile and an enemy, should bring to pass what he could not effect by his persuasions at home, namely, that Rome pay no penalty for her outrages. Setting out, therefore, with a large army, they encamped near Fidenae, and placed two thousand men-at-arms in ambush, just outside Rome, in wooded hollows. Their intention was that a few of their horsemen, as soon as it was day, should boldly ravage the country. But these had been ordered, whenever they approached the city and were attacked, to retire gradually until they had drawn the enemy into the ambuscade. That very day Publicola learned of this plan from deserters, and took measures accordingly, dividing up his forces. Pustumus Balbus, his son-in-law, while it was not yet evening, went out with three thousand men-at-arms, occupied the hills under which the Sabines were lying in ambush, and kept the enemy under observation. Lucretius, his colleague, retaining in the city the lightest armed and most impetuous troops, was ordered to attack the enemy's horsemen as they ravaged the country. He himself took the rest of the army and encircled the enemy in their camp. Favored by a heavy fog, at the break of day, Postumius, with loud shouts, fell upon the ambuscade from the heights, while Lacretius hurled his troops upon the horsemen as they rode down towards the city, and Publicola attacked the camp of the enemy. At all posts, then, the Sabines were worsted and undone. Wherever they were, they made no defense, but fled, and the Romans straightway slew them. The very hopes that they placed in one another proved most fatal to them. For each party, supposing that the other was safe, had no thought of holding their ground in fighting, but those in the camp ran towards those in the ambuscade, while those on their part ran to those in the camp, so that fugitives encountered fugitives, and found those needing succor from whom they expected succor themselves. And all the Sabines would have perished, had not the neighboring city of Fidenae afforded a refuge to some, especially to those who fled from the camp when it was captured. All who did not gain the city were either slain or brought back to Rome as prisoners. This success, the Romans, although they were wont to attribute all such great events to the influence of the gods, considered to be the work of their general alone. And the first thing his soldiers were heard to say was that Publicola had delivered their enemies into their hands, lame, blind, and all but imprisoned, to be dispatched by their swords. Great wealth also accrued to the people from the spoils and prisoners. But Publicola immediately, after celebrating his triumph, and handing the city over to the consuls appointed to succeed him, died. So far as it can possibly be achieved by men who are regarded as honorable and good, he had brought his life to perfection. 
The people, as if they had done nothing to show their esteem for him while he was alive, but owed him every homage, decreed that his body should be buried at the public charge, and that every man should contribute a quadrants toward the honor. The women also, by private agreement amongst themselves, mourned a whole year for him, with a mourning which was honorable and enviable. He was buried, too, by express vote of the citizens, within the city, near the so-called Velia, and all his family were to have the privilege of burial there. Now, however, none of his family is actually buried there, but the body is carried thither and set down, and some one takes a burning torch and holds it under the bier for an instant, and then takes it away, attesting by this act that the deceased has the right of burial there, but relinquishes the honor. After this, the body is borne away. End of Publicola, Part 2